You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello all and welcome to the Nitty Gritty Nursing Podcast with Nurse M. Today we're going to break down pulmonary embolisms and the nursing care associated with this. And to begin with, really, I think we should all have a basic understanding of what a pulmonary embolus is, which is just, it occurs when a thrombus or a clot essentially forms, most commonly in a deep vein, like in your lower leg, and breaks free and travels to the right side of the heart, which it goes from the right side of the heart, right atrium, right ventricle, and then lodges itself into a branch of the pulmonary artery, causing a lot of problems. Now, people who tend to be really at risk for the development of pulmonary embolisms are those that have prolonged immobilization. So those patients that just never get out of bed in the hospital, they're at risk for it. Anyone who's had surgery, um, people of a larger body habitus that might be classified in the obesity range, um, just because there's a lot of pressure that puts a lot of stasis on the venous circulation, trying to get back from the lower legs to the heart. Um, People with pregnancy, heart failure, advanced age, or a history of thromboembolism, and uh, frequently, what you know, especially in nursing school, wink, wink, hint, hint, uh, frequently what they'll also associate this with are um, patients who have been on some sort of hormone replacement therapy, you know, like the birth, an oral one specifically, like birth control pill. And I feel like I should also stipulate that an embolus is just a collection of something. So it could be blood, like a blood clot that comes from a deep vein thrombosis, aka DVT, or it could be from like a fat embolus, which often occurs as a complication following a fracture of a really long bone, bone marrow, which pops out and that little fat embolus flies up to the heart and into the pulmonary arteries. And then it could also just be an air embolus. So there's quite a few things that we classify under embolus. We just most frequently associate pulmonary emboli with some sort of blood clot. And frankly, the way that pulmonary embolisms, irregardless of what it's made of, the way that they manifest in patients is going to be like very classic. These patients are going to have sudden shortness of breath. And if you think about the physiology behind it, like you've got some sort of item and or like big embolus that's blocking a pulmonary artery. So it's preventing blood from the right side of the heart to get to the lungs to do the oxygenation and the exchange of CO2 and O2. And as a result, these patients are going to have that sudden shortness of breath because perfusion is not happening to the lungs. They're also going to become tachypnic as a compensatory mechanism, as well as tachycardic to try to pump more blood to the lungs to compensate for that. And it just doesn't work. They also frequently describe like a stabbing chest pain or a pleuritic chest pain. They might have a dry cough, depending on if it is a blood clot that's the pulmonary embolism. Like they might have hemoptysis, which is blood in the in the sputum when they're coughing. But honestly, like these patients, they just become super apprehensive. They get super restless. And if you think why, like there's no blood going to their lungs to be oxygen. It makes sense. If you're underwater and you're like, you went diving at the pool and you went all the way to the bottom and you held your breath and then you didn't get to the top nearly as fast as you would have liked and you feel, if you remember that apprehension that you had trying to get to the top to get that breath, that's very similar to what these patients are feeling. They might become diaphoretic as well. You're going to see a decrease in arterial oxygen. If you do an arterial blood gas, right, you, you will probably see that. From a cardiac perspective, that's all just respiratory. From a cardiac perspective, think about the blood flow. Like it's not going to go to the lungs and it gets backed up on the right side of the heart. Well, pathway of least resistance is it's just going to not be able to get into the right 
atrium. So you're going to have distended neck veins. You might have syncope because your cardiac output has just gone to absolute trash. They might be cyanotic. You might get some sort of systemic hypotension because again, the blood is not getting into the heart because it's blocked in the pulmonary artery. So it can't get to the left side of the heart. So you'll get systemic hypotension. You might also have abnormal heart sounds if you're doing or if they're on a cardiac monitor. Yeah, you might see abnormal electrophysiology on an ECG and hypoxemia that they're going to have because again, blood's not going to the lungs is going to trigger that anxiety and like the classic sense of impending doom. And your patient is not going to suddenly have a PE and look at you and say, I feel a sense of impending doom. No, they're not going to say that. They're going to become that classic apprehensive restless. They're going to get sudden anxiety. And those are the considerations that you need to be aware of for the clinical manifestations and be cognizant of and then report those out labs that we might do is we might get an arterial blood gas, but if you're in any sort of shop that has that capacity, it takes a hot minute to get those. So put some pulse oximetry on them, maximize the the blood flow that we do have, throw them on oxygen, and we go from there. Now, once you have the oxygen on them and you're maximizing the little flow that they've got to their pulmonary circulation if they've got it, you're going to want to do continuous patient monitoring and basically reassure them because these patients are going to be super anxious. If your hospital system has the rapid response team protocol, like initiate that if you think someone has a PE and notify that provider. And then you really want to position these patients in a way that will maximize their breathing capacity. And if they don't have an IV, you sure shit better get an IV. Continue monitoring that pulse oximetry and assess that cardiovascular status. Look for different things like, uh, do they look cyanotic, etc. And then we want to begin drug therapy. If we can confirm that they've got a pulmonary embolism, especially if it's a DVT or a clot, um, we're going to start them on an anticoagulant or a fibrinolytic therapy to break that apart. Now, let's say that your patient did have a pulmonary embolism and it was a clot and they decided to start them on an anticoagulant therapy. Basically, your nursing care during that treatment is going to be to assess them for bleeding about every two hours because we're literally giving them a drug that's going to cause them to not to clot. So you examine everything, all their stool, their urine, any drainage. If they're puking their guts out, you're going to examine that for any semblance of gross blood that could be indicative of bleeding somewhere else. And we might also measure the abdominal girth about every eight hours. The whole point behind that is to make sure that there's not like venous stasis that is occurring below and that it's actually getting through and then monitor those lab values. Um, lab values such as your clotting factors. So if someone's got heparin on board, you better be monitoring their activated partial thromboplastin time, the APTT, which the easy way to remember that is APTT. Those double T's make the two sticks of the H, which is for heparin. So if your patient is getting heparin, you should look for an APTT. And then we can also do surgical management. So if it's bad enough, we can take these patients for like a surgical embolectomy where we will go in and literally remove the clot inside their pulmonary arteries so that blood flow can be restored and they can actually oxygenate. If it's something where we know they've got like a deep vein thrombosis in one of their lower extremities, we can actually go in and place an inferior vena cava filtration device. It's a little filter. It kind of looks like a jellyfish with the tentacles and we'll go in through their groin um, and basically in that inferior vena cava, we just deploy this, uh, (laughs) you know, jellyfish looking device. And then if a clot were to break free from, you know, a clot, in one of their lower legs, like in their calf, this filter would capture it in the inferior vena cava before it reached the heart, and then you wouldn't have a significant 
um, you know, issue with a pulmonary embolism occurring. And oftentimes, the IVC filters that we use, they're basically designed um, to be used in patients who have a contraindication, for example, to an anticoagulant, or they've got uh, complications from an anticoagulant that they've taken before previously, or maybe they just like are not compliant with them at all. And so they'll put those in to help prevent those clots to getting from getting to the heart. All this to say that, like, ultimately, we as an issue should just be preventing a pulmonary embolus from occurring. And so if you think about the risk factors, like smoking is a risk factor. So again, like smoking cessation, we should just, like, encourage our patients through motivational interviewing to stop smoking. Um, if they've got they're a patient of a larger body habitus and they're classified into the obesity region, like, we should encourage weight reduction because that will decrease the lower pressure that will allow the blood flow to flow back, less risk for stasis, venous stasis of the blood, which could lead to a potential clot. Um, if patients are traveling for really long periods of time, basically sitting, especially on airplanes, if you've ever seen those, uh, you know, tiny commercials of like, do the leg stretches inside the airplane. That's a real thing. Because if you're traveling or sitting for really long periods of time, we encourage people to like get up and walk around, drink those plenty of fluids so that your blood stays thin and not super viscous. Um, I'm also a huge fan of compression socks. Shout out to uh, Pro Compression. If you don't know about that brand, you should t- totally check them out. I do feel compelled to say that I have no product of like I don't get any kickback from pro compression. I just, when I was a student, like that was what I could afford because I usually have some pretty sweet deals and I could get, you know, a few pairs of socks if I went in with a few of my friends uh, when they were having their sale. But there's a lot of good brands of compression socks out there, especially for healthcare providers. If you don't own any, you should totally check them out because they're worth it in the long run. Even I, on 12 hours on shift, will wear a pair of pro compression socks. In addition to even like flying, I, I slap a pair of those bad boys on and then I don't worry about like, you know, my legs swelling up. This happens. And sitting for really long periods of time, like that bend at the hips and at the knees, I'm, it's just basic like physics. You know, I'm not a physicist, I'm a nurse, but you know, that blood flow has to make that corner around the knees and that angle and then again around the hips. And so it just, it takes a lot more time to get to it. And those are sharp angles to make. And so you want to make sure that we try to mitigate that as much as possible. From an inpatient nursing perspective, like put those sequential compression devices on, SCDs, we call them SCUDs where I'm from, but it's an SCD. Those kind of gently squeeze the calves and help increase circulatory, venous circulatory flow back to the heart and then ensure like early ambulation. So if your patient is post-operative, like the earlier they can ambulate, the less complications you're going to have in terms of respiratory complications and in terms of like, we're going to decrease the risk of potential clots from forming. Make sure that, you know, maybe if they're in hospital, wear a pair of TED hose. So that is everything that I've got in the nitty gritty for pulmonary embolus today. Just go forth and keep learning. Have a good day.